Talk Murder to Me, a true crime tour, is coming to the Denver, Colorado area Thursday, February 10th through Sunday, February 13th. Join the hosts of your favorite true crime podcasts on an all-star panel of true crime experts discussing some curious cases. You'll be joined by Cults, Crimes, and Cabernet, True Consequences, True Crime IRL, and Generation Y. And you'll be enjoying this true crime chat in some pretty cool venues while sipping on craft beers, cocktails, and wine. You can search for the event on Eventbrite by typing in Talk Murder to Me, a true crime tour, or you can go to my website, truecrimeirl.com slash events to get all the details and links to buy your tickets. You're not going to want to miss this one-of-a-kind event coming to Colorado in February 2022. And until then, well, you know the drill. Lock your doors, people. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Hey everybody, welcome to season two of True Crime IRL, true crime in real life. This is a new limited series called The Manchester Mysteries. You'll still be getting real-life stories of crime and unsolved cases, but all wrapped up in a very different package. This season, I'm concentrating on the captivating stories that have come out of one particular small Midwestern town called Manchester. Manchester is both weird and wonderful, with a full cast of interesting characters who have some unique stories to tell. I'll be presenting you with tales of murder, mayhem, and crimes of passion. And I'll be bringing you everything from missing persons cases to questionable suicides, and even a homicide that went unsolved for 40 years. There'll be an element of local folklore to some of our tales, but also a healthy dose of science, DNA technology, forensics, history, government, law, and so much more. And yes, it's all out of one little community in small town America. If you think you had our country's heartland all figured out, well, guess again, because I'll be bringing you stories this season that would make Ted Bundy blush. Season two of True Crime IRL, The Manchester Mysteries, debuts January 14th, 2022, and is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Until then, lock your doors, people, even if, or especially if, you live in Manchester. Bye-bye. You're listening to Season 2 of True Crime IRL, The Manchester Mysteries. Although this series is based 100% on factual events, keep in mind that at times we've changed the names of people or places in order to protect the innocent, or in some cases, the guilty. Episode 8, An Interview with the Prosecutor. Hey everybody, it's Kelly from True Crime IRL. Welcome to episode 8 of season 2 of True Crime IRL, The Manchester Mysteries. In this season, as you know, I'm discussing the Michelle Martinko murder and her convicted killer, Jerry Burns. 
I've been interested in this case for many years, and here's why. I lived in Cedar Rapids where Michelle Martingo was murdered. Now, it happened in 1979. I was only two years old at the time, and I didn't even live there at the time. But living in Cedar Rapids for about 20 years, you know, every December on the anniversary of her death, the case would be in the news year after year because... It was just such a bizarre thing that happened in the city of Cedar Rapids. And it was just crazy that for almost four decades, the case went unsolved. And then I moved away from Cedar Rapids to Manchester. And I had not lived there very long at all before I found out that her killer lived right there in Manchester. And that was a huge shock to the entire community because it seemed like a completely random act of violence and nobody could wrap their heads around the fact that Jerry Burns, the man they all knew, was a cold-blooded killer. And even today, if you bring up this case in coffee shops, bars, restaurants, or anywhere, you're going to get people who get pretty upset sometimes about talking about Jerry Burns and a lot of people are like, he absolutely did not do this. The discussions get really heated when you bring up the Michelle Martinko case in relation to Jerry Burns. I have had some people trolling me online. I have had, I won't name names, but I've had some hate mail. I've had some people messaging me saying, I am wrong. I shouldn't be covering this case. I shouldn't be talking about it because Jerry Burns is innocent. And to that, I say, I'm sorry, but that's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's ridiculous because the evidence in this case is cut and dry. You cannot base a case on emotion or your thoughts about a person. There's cold, hard evidence in this case that points in the direction of Jerry Burns, and it's irrefutable. There's nothing you can say or do to change the fact that Jerry Burns' blood was on the gear shifter of Michelle's car and also on Michelle's dress. You cannot explain that away by saying Jerry Burns was a nice guy. There's nothing you can say, and there's nothing that can change the fact that he is the killer of Michelle Martinko. It's shocking to me as well. Trust me, it is. It's hard to believe, but you have to believe it because the evidence, the DNA, it doesn't lie. So, I was thrilled when Nick Maybanks, the prosecutor on this case, agreed to come on True Crime IRL and talk to me about the trial and the evidence and all of that stuff. So I hope you guys really enjoy this interview I did with him. It really solidified my opinion on this case, which is Jerry Burns is guilty. And I have to say, you know, I feel horrible for the family and friends of Jerry Burns who, you know, believed in him and still believe in him. I know how hard that must be to have a convicted murderer in the family, and it's hard to wrap your head around. And my heart goes out to, obviously, the family and friends of Michelle Martinko, the victim, first and foremost. But my heart also goes out to the family and friends of Jerry Burns because their lives are changed forever and it's all just it's sad you know nobody wins so I do address the fact that it's hard to believe Jerry Burns is a killer I I get that but I can't ignore the evidence so after this conversation with Nick Maybanks I just 
don't think there is any other way to explain Michelle's murder besides the fact that Jerry Burns did it. So anyway, sorry, I'm talking way too much. I want you guys to enjoy this interview. It, it was really good. It was very telling. Let's get to it. So Nick, tell me a little bit about yourself and um, your background in the law. Okay. Yeah, I'm Nick Maybanks. I was born and raised here in Cedar Rapids. I uh, am currently the Lynn County attorney. I was just appointed to that position in, uh, well, for about four weeks ago or so. Oh, recent. Um, wow. Good for you and congratulations. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, I became a lawyer in 2000. I graduated from uh, Drake University. Prior to that, I went to Loris College in Dubuque. So I've always been an Iowa guy. Good school, I started with Drake. The, uh, yeah, you bet. Yeah. <laughs> you bet. I started with the Lynn County Attorney's Office uh, in September 2000. It was my first job in the practice of the law. Uh, I was started as a, uh, we call a simple misdemeanor prosecutor. So I was doing traffic courts and pushing shoves, low-level thefts, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, worked my way up to prosecuting felony-level crimes about 2007 or so. Became the first assistant uh, to the county attorney in 2010. Uh, and then, you know, like I said, county attorney a, a few weeks ago when my boss retired. But mm-hmm. I've been working on the uh, the high level felony cases now for the last uh, 15 years or so, wow. um, including the violent crimes and murders. Wow. Yeah. So no, no criminal defense or anything. You're a full straight up prosecutor. That's yep. your thing. Yeah. Full prosecutor last yeah. 21 and a half years. Oh my yep. goodness. I said before you look way too young to have done it for this long, but yeah. Appreciate that. <laughs> I'll take it because this job does age people. So yes, um, that's I, definitely a compliment. <laughs> I'm sure it does. Take me back to that time when you found out that maybe this 40 year old cold case could be solved and that you might be working on it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll take you, uh, first I'll take you back, back to the fact that I, um, I remember, um, I don't remember the actual murder taking place. I was four years old when it happened here in Cedar Rapids, but I remember growing up hearing about, uh, the murder of Michelle Martinko at uh, Westdale Mall in Cedar Rapids, particularly because I went to Westdale Mall a lot growing up. I was born and raised on the West side of town. And, uh, it was just a place that we liked to frequent as kids uh, and into young adulthood. So, uh, we were very well well aware of Michelle's murder. We were reminded about it, uh, not only by our parents when we were young, but by the local media every yes. Christmas or so. So yep. it's something that just loomed largely over our community for a lot of years. Yeah. And when I became a prosecutor, um, like I said, I was doing the uh, the more high-level cases and whatnot, and I was contacted. Um, I just would have been probably back in maybe the early fall or so of okay. 2019. 2018 2018 right? yep yes. so the arrest was made on December 19th the anniversary of her death in 2018 and so yeah yes. you would have become privy to all of that probably in the fall yeah 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 and so what had happened is there have been a lot of activity on the case since the investigator uh who was ultimately the one who was the head investigator in the case Matt Denlinger took it over um and it had started in about uh, spring of 
2018 when they had reached out and uh, made contact with Parabon, the uh, company out, out there on the East Coast that was doing yes. a lot of this genetic genealogy work and whatnot. So my listeners are very familiar with Parabon Nano Labs and the work they do, like such as the Golden State Killer and, and lots of cold cases that have been cracked and had convictions on, you know, because of genealogy and stuff. So yeah. Right. Yeah. And it was kind of cool. I think the uh, discoveries that were made in the uh, Martinko case were made uh, nearly simultaneously with the Golden Case Killer. Yes. Uh, there was a lot of big news coming out around that time. And that's kind of what prompted me to kind of start a podcast, all of those oh. stories coming out. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So they had done uh, this work on Michelle's case and had narrowed down you know, the, the suspects to, uh, these three brothers out of, out of, uh, Manchester. Gosh, I, yes, Manchester. I'm sorry. That's where you are. That's, um, that's where I live. So that's exactly, the other reason yes. I decided to start the podcast because I <laughs> lived in Cedar Rapids and like you yeah. heard about the, you know, the anniversary tributes and stuff to Michelle every year. And then mm-hmm. I moved away out of Cedar Rapids, right to Manchester and right to Manchester. Just, yes. he was right in my backyard, basically. So yeah. yeah, when I got brought in, they had reached the point where they had it narrowed down to three brothers. Mm-hmm. And so we hadn't, um, you know, collected the DNA, the covert DNA yet and, and whatnot in order to uh, send that off to the DCI lab and get it further narrowed down to um to the suspect who obviously ended up being Jerry Burns. And so they brought me into the case kind of at that moment, um, just to, to strategize from that point, um, knowing that we were going to find our suspect and, mm-hmm. you know, what steps we needed to take. And so I began um, planning and strategizing with law enforcement. Obviously they, uh, we solidified our plan to go collect the, the covert DNA, which they had already formulated um, and then, uh, we met again when we had narrowed it down to, to Jerry Burns. And then that's when we, um, discussed, um, heading to, um, Manchester to, uh, to interview him. So that's really when my involvement kind of stepped up in the case a little bit more. Yeah. We got to that point. So I actually, uh, accompanied the, um, investigators to, uh, Manchester on oh, December. Oh, you did? I did. There? Yeah, I okay. did. Okay. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was pretty cool. It's not something that that prosecutors, I guess, do a lot. Um, yeah. We're, we're allowed to. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just yep. that we don't usually get involved uh, that early in the case. But because of the notoriety of this case, because we knew, you know, just how important it was to the, the police department, the surviving family and so on and yes. so forth. We just wanted to have all hands on deck. Um, yeah, so it that's, sounds like it was quite a crew that came that day. Um <laughs> But like yeah. 12 to 17 people or something were ready because you never know what could happen. Like Matt Denlinger said, it's a 40 year old, almost cold case. And you don't know if the suspect is going to, you know, you don't know what they're going to do. They might get upset or um, do some crazy stuff. So you guys have Absolutely. to be Absolutely. Yeah. You have to, you have to think that um, the suspect has been carrying around a 39 year old secret with them and that when that day would come, when somebody would show up to talk to them, it'd be unpredictable what could happen. So, yeah, yeah. you know, there were a lot of people that were were ready for all possible contingencies that took place. Yeah. And we obviously chose the date to approach him. Just so happened that we were, it was running online with the timeline of our investigation anyway, um, as things were transpiring. So it just sort of worked out. And we thought, well, we'll just, we'll go on that day because that uh, serves as a 
kind of a talking point during the interview, you know, to yeah. bring that up, which they did. Bring oh my gosh. Interview. Perfect yeah. timing on that. Yes. Yeah. That was, yeah. That was good. Yeah. So 39 years to the day. Um, Brings it full circle. So I, yeah. I participated from the, from the van outside of Jerry's business just by listening in and to the conversation as was transpiring and whatnot. And then of course, I think you've, you've covered sort of what happened that day and things. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know. I had the, the body cam footage and excerpts mm-hmm. from that and um, all of that with Matt and everything. It was pretty interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. an intense day. Yeah. And yeah. so we charged him that day. And then um, at that point in time, we sort of went from the investigative stage into the trial stage of the case. So my question is, you didn't go into it that day and Matt Denlinger didn't go into it that day knowing for sure you'd be making an arrest. Do you know what played into the decision to actually make an arrest on that day? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that was the plan because, you know, we had his DNA, obviously, you know, on the crime scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole idea of that was to allow him an opportunity to explain um, mm-hmm. the presence of the DNA because we wanted to leave all contingencies open, um, mm-hmm. all possible explanations um, just to get answers. You, we envisioned possible scenarios where it could have been there that would have not uh, presented him as a killer. Unlikely ones have mm-hmm. you, but things we might need to at least follow up on and investigate. Right. Um, yeah. But through the course of the interview, um, based on his failure to explain the uh, uh, presence of his DNA adequately in, in the um, numerous incriminating comments he made during the course mm-hmm. of the interview, yeah, it became clear to the investigative team that, you know, any, any lingering doubts we had that he was the person who killed Michelle Martinko were resolved at that point mm-hmm. in time. And so yeah. the decision was made to, to go ahead and move, make the yep. arrest. Yeah. And he didn't really seem to, he didn't resist you or anything. He just kind of was like, okay, it came, it was kind of weird. Yeah. Like the car yeah. ride back to Cedar Rapids and everything that I've watched the footage of, it was kind of, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And I, I think you've, well, you at least done a podcast on the opening statements, right? Yeah. We've done opening statements so far. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and so in the closing argument in particular, which you may have listened to, I, I've listened. I haven't We'll get to it. We will okay. get to it. I mean, but well, yeah, t- talk about it. I won't spoil then. No, because, do. <laughs> um, I enjoyed that you played almost all of the uh, opening statements. I sped you up a little bit. You sped me up a little bit, which made me think I need to slow down. <laughs> no, no, you did But then did you great. told me that you did <laughs> yeah. that on purpose, so that's good. Yeah. But, but so I really emphasize in the closing argument too, um, you know, when it comes to that interview, how he didn't really respond like somebody who was innocent would. You know, right. I mean, you I just agree. get the idea that put put yourself in a position where you're going about your life, you're in your business, you've got this family, you know, this established uh, life, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, some officers show up in your door and say, "We think you killed somebody 39 years ago at a mall." I mean, you, me, mm-hmm. we'd be yeah. like, "What the hell are you talking about?" Exactly. This didn't like, I would you be got like, the wrong guy. Yes, you know? and he, um, but he didn't, didn't act yeah. like that. No, yeah. he did not. So that that was uh, that was pretty revealing, I think, about what was going on. And then, of course, uh, in the um, car ride from Manchester to Cedar Rapids, um, you know, he made some statements that he kind mm-hmm. of gave us, I, I believe, more insight into what was going into his. Uh, on I his agree. Mind. The blacking yeah. out comments and you yes. know, um, yeah. just suppressing those memories and things like that. I'll get into that in my podcast in a, a couple episodes down the road, but yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. It's 
kind of incriminating, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Sometimes what you don't say says a lot. So yeah. Well, um, you always hear yeah. everybody responds differently to situations. Yes. Um, that's you know, a big that's... thing in what I do. Everybody is like, I mean, people, you, you never know how you're going to respond in a situation like that, but you would think it would, yeah, yeah you would deny the accusations. So uh, yes, yeah. yes, vehemently. Yeah. So speaking of the DNA, this case is all about DNA. I feel like the defense, Leon Spies and his team, they attempted to have the DNA evidence suppressed before the trial began, but that was what the case was based off of was DNA. So talk a little bit about that, uh, I guess, if you have, you know, any comments on that. Yeah. So, I mean, the way we did obtain the DNA in this case, at least through the genetic genealogy route, mm-hmm. was novel, um, at least, you know, uh, for the state of Iowa. Well, basically across the nation, because um, mm-hmm. anything that was happening was happening, again, simultaneously um, in, in all these jurisdictions. So mm-hmm. it presented a, an opportunity for Mr. Spees to put forth a also a novel argument to try to suppress the DNA, um, yeah. claiming a privacy interest in, um, you know, that, that familial DNA that's out there within, even if it's in the public atmosphere, that there's some sort of privacy interest in your familial DNA that Mr. Burns could invoke um, to, um, to suppress it because we didn't uh, obtain a warrant to, to obtain the initial uh, information off of Jed Match and so on and so forth. Oh. And then obviously there was a challenge too that was made to the collection of the DNA from the, the straw. From the straw yeah. and whatnot. But um, that that was never going to be meritorious because we had um, case law on that. So we weren't right. Really that. The case law says that it's trash. You know, anybody, mm-hmm. once it's been discarded, it's trash. And it exactly. anyone, it's fair game, right? Is that pretty much what the law says? Yes. Yeah. Now there has been a recent Supreme Court case involving um, rips of trash that somebody would leave out on their own curb with the expectation that that's going to be picked up by the city. Um, okay. Not to get too much in the weeds on it. It's a yeah. totally different scenario than it is yeah. in this case, but yeah, totally mis- different. I didn't want to the- misquote the status yeah. of the current law, but, right. but it didn't change the fact that if you discard a straw or something at a restaurant, it's a completely right. different type of thing. And so the, yeah, it's still on good grounds with that, but yeah. I, I did enjoy litigating and exploring the issue on as far as the suppression of the familial DNA, because that just um, made made for like a very larger, more philosophical conversation about privacy and the internet, things like that. Totally. And things are changing. I mean, everybody's Mm -hmm. done 23andMe and Ancestry and Mm -hmm. all of that. So I think once you've done that, you're kind of just saying, hey, here's my DNA. It's fair game for for whatever. Kind of. Right. And if it's accessible to the public, it's accessible to police. That's yeah. always been kind of the general rule as far as like anything in the public atmosphere. Mm-hmm. If a police officer can can see it just like the public can, then it's not you don't have a legitimate expectation of privacy, Absolutely. which is what it came down to as far as the ruling goes. hundred percent. Yes. I'm actually I did an interview with Brandy Jennings, the family match in Vancouver, Washington, mm-hmm. about that whole process. And that episode comes out tomorrow. So, OK, I'll tune in. Talk. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people in town who knew Jerry Burns, they say there is no way Jerry Burns did this because, oh, we knew Jerry, you know, he's a great guy, a businessman, a pillar of the community, all of that. But you know what? Dennis Rader, the BTK serial killer, Ted Bundy, all these people, same boat, you know, they, it's hard to believe that someone 
close to you in your life could could commit some atrocious crime and you didn't know that. So I think in this case, though, it's not opinion or theory or anything like that. It's DNA and DNA doesn't lie. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that internet search history from Jerry's computer that was confiscated. I think it was his work computer at the business and there was some pretty incriminating stuff on that computer. And I personally think that was really important for the jury to hear and for that to be admitted because it shows his character and, you know, just a lot about a person. But ultimately, that was suppressed. So I would love to talk a little bit about that if you're able to. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was out there in the public atmosphere, the public, you know. Yeah, it was on the news. uh, Knowledge. So no problem talking about it. But um, so you're right. The. The theory we had for the admissibility of the internet search history went to his motive. Mm-hmm. Um, Iowa law says that you know generally someone's prior bad acts are not admissible to prove that they committed conduct consistent with oh. that at the time of the crime. Okay, I didn't um, know that Iowa law said that actually. Yeah. So that's interesting. I disagree that, with that but, Iowa law. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But there's but saying that there's there's exceptions to that. Yeah. So it's a rule of evidence, but the exceptions are that are delineated out are there's a few of them, but the one we focus on is you, there's an exception to prior conduct. If the prosecution can use it to show a person's motive. Okay. Um, so we, that was our primary argument here. Mm-hmm. And we really forced um, or tried to make a compelling case for that because um, it was no mystery that we didn't have any motive evidence at all. Right. So we tried right. to argue to the judge that this is important evidence that is probative value or its importance to the jury is substantial enough that would overcome any prejudice to the defendant because it's a, such vital evidence in order to prove motive. Yes. Um, that motive obviously being that he was um, sexually attracted to um, females in this um, deviant way, particularly yes. the history that was uh, seemed to be focused on search terms that um, were very similar to Michelle's appearance too. And that, you know, it was blonde. a search for blonde and uh, strangulation, murder, homicide, those things like that, rape. So, and there was a lot on there. It was, there was, there was a lot of history of that. And you so, saw all of that, obviously, as the prosecutor on the case, you know exactly right. what was on that computer. And I, you probably can't talk about all of it, but. Um, well, yeah. So the forensic expert who found it all gave us a nice summary of it. I didn't actually yeah. go and look at all of it, but I, I, I did um, see one sample of it and that was enough for me. I mean, um, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> that was damning in my it opinion. It was, it was, you know, and, but the judge made the decision that um, it was going to be too prejudicial. And then she, she actually, the judge also decided that um, there had been a, I think there was, she thought there was a minor defect in the way the warrant was written too. So, oh, uh, so there was okay. a couple reasons that we didn't uh, ultimately get it in, but I got to tell you, I was not heartbroken by that at all, Kelly, because yeah we built our case around the DNA and we yeah. didn't expect the, the internet search history to even yeah. be part of the case. Yeah. So yeah. when it, when it happened, um, you know, we were looking at his computer for evidence of him researching cold cases and forensic evidence and things like that, thinking that, you know, we could show that, Hey, look, he's looking at this stuff because he did yeah. this, but then we yeah. just happened on that other stuff. So, yeah. Uh, so losing it was not um, devastating at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the one jury... less appeal point too yeah. now. So that's yes. Yeah. 
the jury came back with the guilty verdict regardless of that because I just keep saying throughout this season of my podcast DNA doesn't lie absolutely yeah. Yeah. what's the DNA in the end yep so speaking of the appeal you mentioned that Jerry Burns has hired Kathleen Zellner who is famous from the making a murderer docuseries on Netflix she's a high profile um, appellate attorney and that is in appeal right now and she's going back I think to the DNA evidence saying that the straw obtaining it kind of violated Jerry's constitutional rights. If I have that correct, I think that is what I gathered. Talk about that if you can, a little bit about the appellate process, how that works after someone's been found guilty and how it pertains to Jerry Burns in particular. So in the state of Iowa, like, uh, like many other states, there's a different office that handles criminal appeals than the original prosecuting office. And so in Iowa, the Iowa Attorney General's Office Criminal Appeals Division handles all of our um, appeals on, on convictions. Okay. And so there's a very uh, talented appellate uh, attorney handling that case now. I've just had minor consultations with him about things. I saw the appellate brief quickly. Uh, I had a chance to, to, to look over it. They do raise, you know, some points from the trial and they're, they're trying to, uh, especially the DNA evidence and whatnot, they're trying to kind of relitigate some of those issues and there's some newer arguments and I just, I didn't see anything that I was concerned about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that we're still on solid ground, um, but I have to leave that to in, in the trustworthy hands of my yeah. colleagues at the attorney general's office. Yeah. Yeah. Prediction. Yeah. So once, mm-hmm. once the, once it's in the appellate process, you're kind of, you're not involved after that point, probably. Yep. Yeah. Only if it comes back for okay. retrial, which yeah, we don't want that. Um. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> if they found it like unconstitutional or something like that or whatever, that the DNA was obtained in the wrong way or something, he could have a retrial, right? Or a retrial would be what would happen. That could be one of the remedies. You know, if that happens, then we gotta do what we got to do. But I, yeah. 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 I think we're on pretty solid ground on that. I think but, so, yeah. too. I think so, I too. Did, I did hear that Miss was it Zellner? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that she was taking the appeal too. So, but I didn't, I didn't know who she was when I heard that. Yeah. Did you uh, watch Making a Murderer on Netflix? No. <laughs> no. No. You know, I just I, maybe some people are different, but I just I do this every day, so I don't usually watch shows about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, um, I some know, people. I are, no offense. I know that. No, 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 no. I listen to yours I, though, Kelly. Because thank you. <laughs> you're doing a great job, and I would tell everybody out there to please listen to it too. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, yeah, this case in particular, like I've been not obsessed, but very heavily interested in this case since, since I, it started making headlines. So I had to, I had to talk about it in season two of my podcast, but yeah, there's a lot of Facebook groups that have formed, you know, so So it is just cut halfway down the middle on both sides. Like people (laughs) are like, he is innocent. He is guilty. I have had a lot of hate (laughs) that I'm even talking about, you know, and he was convicted, but I'm still getting a lot of like hate mail and messages and things like that from people. Yeah. Including, I won't put, I'll edit this out probably, but um, some of his family has contacted me saying he's not guilty. The whole trial was a lie thing. Just Mm. kind of like things Mm -hmm. that I'm like, Oh, whatever. Okay. That's interesting. Nobody's, nobody's, uh, 
contacted me. Well, I was going to ask as the prosecutor, like you covered this high profile case, but you were on TV a lot too. Um, How does it affect you and your family and your friends being on such a high profile case, knowing that everything you say is going to be scrutinized under a magnifying glass? How is it prosecuting a high profile case like this? I think it was the honor and privilege of my career to do this case. I mean, not only is it a meaningful case to the people of Cedar Rapids, but to the, the family, um, the remaining family and friends. Michelle Martinko mm-hmm. was um, just a liberating for them and to just be a part of their celebration, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. or just their sort of relief to this. The closure um, that's that That's why comes. I do what I do is so I can help people through this and get justice. And so- yeah. You know, it was it was an honor and a privilege for that. Now, there was a lot of eyes on the case. And so, you know, I I wasn't immune to that. But I think just having the number of years I already had in and experience, and this is not my first high profile case. Yeah, um, that helped. Um, And I think prosecutors, at least I do, we just get in a zone a little bit where we're just like, hey, it's about facts. It's about evidence, the law, and it's about presenting the most honest forthright case you possibly can to a jury of peers and, you know, getting a conviction. So in a lot lot of ways, it's like any other case. It just happened to be very high profile. Mm -hmm. And so I have the utmost confidence and faith in the job that our entire team did. I have no reservations about the way we did it. And I'm hundred percent confident it was the right outcome. I agree. I have watched so much of this trial on YouTube and just news clips and I think you did a great job. You were very thorough. I Thank think you. you did a really good job. Matt Denlinger, everyone on it did yeah, a stellar absolutely. job. So good job there. What do yeah. you think happened that night at the mall? I mean, do you have any theories? It just it seems to be so random. And as we know, murders like this are so rarely completely random. It's usually somebody the victim knows. It's usually you know, a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, um, or a family member, someone closer to the person at least. And this was a married man with two kids who lived almost an hour away. Mm -hmm. What do you think happened that night? I mean, if you really want to know word for word, what I think happened, then just listen to my closing argument. But uh, for it, and it was long, so I'm not going to go back all the way through it. But <laughs> well, um, it's going to get played here at the okay, end of the yeah, season. But in, in, so. a, in a nutshell, I mean, it was he obviously had planned to do something, whether it be a uh, a murder or a sexual assault. There's evidence to support both of, both of those outcomes. There was evidence that um, that he used gloves at the time of the murder, mm-hmm. which would show planning. Obviously, we're talking about a substantial knife that was used here, not just a regular pocket knife. That would involve some sort of planning. Yeah. It was dark. It was at night. Michelle was alone. So she was isolated. She was vulnerable. There weren't there weren't people around her when she left. He was also by himself. He was far away from home, too. He wasn't anywhere near purportedly or place where someone would recognize him when he had to leave he would have to leave to a a place that would be far enough away where he wouldn't be around the crime scene or close to it you know I mean I I think there's evidence that he sought to do something that night whether it would be a a murder or a sexual assault or a a sexual assault that turned into a murder um, because she kept fighting he had to kill her to make sure that he didn't get 
you know, caught, yeah. turned in. Do you but, think he um, acted alone? Yeah. Evidence shows he acted alone, but. There's nobody else's blood DNA or DNA in the vehicle. There was right. a, a hair that belonged to Mike Wyrick in the vehicle. Um, Which is Mike easy Weirich, to explain. Right. Yeah. He was off at college. Yeah. He was a good witness in the case too. And the jury got to hear from him. So. Yeah. The blood on the gear shifter. Mm-hmm. A lot of people say that could be easy, easily explained because at one time Jerry Burns worked at a car dealership or a an auto repair place or something along those lines where they sold that kind of vehicle. Is that something that detectives investigated or looked into, or is that kind of just a myth that people are circulating? Well, you got to question why the defense didn't bring that up at trial for such a good point. Right. <laughs> you know, it's so very true. Kind yep. of really all I need to say about that. Oh, I mean, if there was yes. actual proof of that, then we yeah. would have heard that at trial. Yeah. And yeah. I don't remember that coming into evidence at the trial. Yeah. So okay. or, and Leon's piece really did not focus on that. So and he would have, have solid that... evidence of that. Exactly. Um, exactly. So, um, yeah. so blood on the gear shifter, blood on the dress. The blood had a one in 100 billion chance of being anyone other than jerry burns that's cut and dry that was like you actually are one of the only people that knows how to explain that statistic so that was that was good you're right that's exactly right and then on the dress was that blood or another kind of dna on the dress was it also blood his blood so it tested presumptively for blood they have a a screening process they use that uh, is a presumptive positive for blood the science doesn't or didn't exist to be able to test that to uh, confirm ultimately. And I, right. and I don't think that you really ever necessarily can. Okay. Um, it's a screening process that says it's blood. So could it have been saliva? It was possible. Could it have been uh, even slough, you know, skin DNA? Sweat. Um, possible, but it, but it was like presumptive that. test for blood. Yeah. And, um, you know, given the other facts in the case involving the use of the knife and so on and so forth, it, there wasn't really a, any other logical ed- explanation or possibility that would be any other kind of DNA. I mean, no. there wasn't any evidence that he spit on her at the mall that night or no. um, yeah. that he touched her other than stabbing her. Yeah. So, and that was a partial DNA profile on the dress, but still you say partial and people might be like, oh, well, there you go. Partial. It's right. still a one in 1000 chance that it could be anyone other than Jerry Burns. The one in one, like 1700 was a statistic that was yeah. used for a different kind of DNA, not the uh, STR regular testing, but it was a, a different kind of DNA test that's done it's just on males. Oh, um, okay. Like male relatives. But even that, had, I forget the final number, but it was like point some percent that it could be. It was still, else. it was like 0.01 right. something right. percent, which is... <laughs> Mm-hmm. such a small fraction i think people don't understand really that mm-hmm. i mean this is it was his dna <laughs> there's yeah, no other yeah. way so yeah we so got to really we had great dna experts at trial and they really laid out the significance of dna findings because every dna case you always you know have something comes up where like oh well we share you know 90 whatever and eight percent of dna with a chimpanzee or something like that and so people are like, oh well wait how can we narrow it down that much farther because we're we have the same dna as monkeys or you yeah. know even someone even say like a plant or something yeah. like that yeah but there's so many billions of different loci and and you know on the dna strand that once you get down to the raw numbers it's it's yeah. still not even close yeah and that's that is what this case was based on it's a dna case 
Jerry Burns DNA on the gear shifter of the car, Jerry mm-hmm. Burns DNA on the dress Michelle was wearing when she was murdered. Yep. Two different He's spots. Closed. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> There's nothing else you can say. So exactly. And when he was confronted with it, all he wanted to do was, was ask questions mm-hmm. instead of deny it. I know that. Yeah. I've Test the DNA. That. He kept saying, "Test the DNA. So, and I loved it when Matt was like, no, Jerry, we did. Yeah, <laughs> we did. Like, and yeah, it's you. We did. And it's you. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I have been looking forward to this conversation with you for weeks. I'm so excited I got to talk to you and have you on the podcast. Nick Maybanks, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I know you're busy and you've got a lot of lawyering to do, so I'm not going to keep you. But um, I think my listeners are going to love listening to what you had to say about the Michelle Martinko murder case. And I thank you for your work, too. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you covering the case and educating everybody. I've enjoyed listening to your podcast. So keep up the good work. (laughs) Thank you so much. Let me know if you anything else. Thanks, Nick. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So if you were on the fence before, whether you thought, you know, did Jerry Burns do it? Did he not do it? How could this be? Well, what do you think now? What are your thoughts now after hearing prosecutor Nick Maybanks talk about this case? What do you think about that irrefutable DNA evidence? Do you think Jerry did it? Or do you think there's some crazy mix-up in the lab and he's actually not guilty? We can continue the conversation on Instagram if you want. Go to True Crime IRL, all one word, and let's talk more about it. Or go to Facebook at True Crime IRL and leave me a comment. I really hope you guys like my show. If you do, please leave me a five-star rating and a good review because it really helps in the search results and really helps get the podcast noticed. And I would really love to keep the show going. So yeah, thank you. I am so excited for the Colorado tour coming up next week. I'm going to be joined by Colts, Crimes, and Cabernet, Generation Y, and True Consequences. And we're doing shows at Goat Patch Brewing Company in Colorado Springs, Colorado, then Breckenridge Brewery in Littleton, followed by shows on Saturday and Sunday, the 12th and 13th, at the Infinite Monkey Theorem and Grandma's House. You can go to truecrimeirl.com for all the details on that. Some shows are sold out, but we still have tickets to a few. So join us. And until next time, lock your doors, people. Bye-bye. True Crime IRL is written, produced, and hosted by Kelly Barron's Brink. Please subscribe to True Crime IRL wherever you get your podcasts and consider leaving a five-star review. Go to truecrimeirl.com for more information. Support the show by becoming a Patreon donor. Go to patreon.com slash truecrimeirlpodcast. You can also support the show by leaving a tip in the TCIRL tip jar. Go to truecrimeirl.com and click on the donate button. Or buy merch in the TCIRL merch shop. truecrimeirl.com slash merch. Watch True Crime IRL on YouTube. YouTube at youtube.com slash kellybrinktv. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at True Crime IRL, all one word. True Crime IRL theme music is produced by the captain at True Crime Garage. 